Okay, is the third one. Lanyard. Knit not. not. Oh, she's very good, John. I think, we, I, think, I think we've got someone who's good at knitting and a sailor. <laughs> That's what a dad did on the weekends. So, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, the not-so-serious business podcast to spark creativity, curiosity, and imagination. Now, as always, we like to kick off the show with what's caught your curious eye this week because we believe curiosity is at the heart of living a creative life and being a good occupational philosopher. So, John, two minutes or less, what's caught your curious eye this week? Hey, Simon. What's caught my curious eye this week is an ongoing saga of the January Advent calendar, which you know about, obviously, and a few people who listening in would know that I've been opening every day my advent calendar and it has a different thing to do something that makes me curious or has me do something creative or imaginative and the one i recently opened was take a map of great britain close your eyes stick a pin in it and go to that place oh. <laughs> so <laughs> i did this <laughs> and i've ended up having to plan a trip to kettering kettering's not too bad but <laughs> which is Nowhere I would ever plan to go. No offence, Kettering, but, you know, I just didn't even register on my radar. However, Kettering, I then subsequently got curious and said, okay, well, that's where we're going. So we are going to, one weekend, drive up to Kettering. It's about, I don't know, 150, 200 miles away. So it's not super far, but um, it's just nowhere I've ever been. And so I thought, well, you know, what's going on in Kettering? What's Kettering famous Hmm. for? And lo and behold, everywhere's got a story. So Kettering... This little place in Northamptonshire, it's about sort of 80 miles north of London. So, you know, just on the way to somewhere. <laughs> and uh, they've, <laughs> again, no offence, Kettering. No, that, that, We're all on the way to somewhere. That narrows it down. <laughs> on the way to somewhere. Anyway. <laughs> so Kettering. And again, it's just lots of famous, there's famous people there. Most notably, and this is the one I want to bring to your attention, Simon, is Michael Kidner, one of the most influential op art artists optical art in the 60s which followed pop art michael kidner was a great artist in that sphere and you will know his stuff and we could put it in the show notes but it's all those kind of optical illusion things black and white where things seemingly take on a 3d effect or there's movement when you've just got loads of concentric circles together and you stare at them okay yeah start to move and ebb and flow so i suddenly looked online i've seen these you've seen them everywhere probably on curtain designs and ikea rugs but (laughs) wallpaper which could send you a bit funny but he was a a massive artist only died not too long ago was an artist and was still putting out work up until these 90s so yeah i thought it was really interesting this is very cool and look if you don't look you don't find which uh, goes to the very heart of curiosity if you did that in australia you would could be in a lot of trouble because <laughs> you put your finger on a map and you go. <laughs> well, that that was my very next thought. You could end up with a three thousand mile trip somewhere near Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> so I like this concept, though, John. I really like this concept, and we'll explore this more in one of our little in betweeners episodes. What about you, Simon? Well, John, you know how we've been talking about NFTs and non-fundable tokens, just exploring that a little bit. And I'm really sort of piqued my interest with what I can possibly do in this space as well as I explore digital art. Now, 
this is going somewhere. Now, there was a girl called Stephanie Matto. She's a celebrity, what do you call it? Like a, um, no, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? A celebrity when you're not really celebrity, like on a reality TV show. Yeah, that's it. Sorry. Okay. Not knocking anyone on reality TV. Reality TV show. And no judgment, she's been selling her farts in a jar. Okay, now this is going somewhere. She's been selling her farts in a jar what? for $1,000 each, a little note and some petals. The problem is there was such a high demand for her farts in a jar <laughs> that she was eating this very high-fibre diet, so she ended up in hospital. <laughs> and she said, <laughs> so she was selling fart jars plus flower petals and a handwritten note for $1,000 and she'd already sold like 97 so she made 100 grand us okay from this now what's happened though because and look this this <laughs> is this is not unusual james joyce had a love for his own wife's flatulence and he would say my wife nora's big fat fellows long windy ones quick little merry cracks from his 1909 love letter to her okay but this is going somewhere this is going somewhere all right Oh now, and no judgment because people like different things. That's fine. And if you, there's a market and it's not hurting anyone, yeah, absolutely. Now, but because but it's hurting her. Yeah. she suffered for art, she ended up in. Oh hospital. no! Here's the thing. This is where NFTs coming in. She decided. This is what I like. I could tell something was not right that evening when I was lying in bed, and I could feel a pressure in my stomach moving upward. It became hard to breathe, and I feel a pinching sensation in my heart. Okay, hospitalized. Hey, girl, you need to change your diet. So now her fart jars are available in a JPEG form tied to a blockchain receipt for 0.05 Ether or about $200 where you can imagine the smell. Now. <laughs> Has the world gone insane? You can, Surely this is a new level of insanity. Surely. Well, it's, just, it's different. It's different. You know, electric cars were insane, John, like 40 years ago. No, no, no. Electric cars had a place. Farts in jars, digital representation of farts in jars, don't no, have a but place. This is well like. I can't go She's that created non-fundable <laughs> tokens, and if you buy 100 tokens, you get the real jar. I'll put it on your Christmas list, Simon. <laughs> that caught my eye, but <laughs> now, there was more around. I was reading about the NFTs, and this came up in the, the feed. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a guest episode this week, Simon. We've already heard our guest giggling behind the scenes there as we shared those stories, which was quite nice. So, Simon, who's the curious, creative, imaginative human being we have with us today? Well, John, we are blessed to have an amazing guest today. Her story is a great yarn, pun intended. She's a PhD in musicology, sits at the intersection of fashion, entrepreneurialism, creativity and joy, and making a more beautiful, creative and happy world, and also a huge difference in literally thousands of women's lives in the world. And she has more curiosity than most cats I've ever met, I've ever met, I've ever met, connecting fashion brands, customers and artisans through the art and science of hand knitting. Please welcome Danielle Cheel. Thanks, welcome Simon. Danielle. And now we can add NFTs because I too am into NFTs. Ooh, fantastic. <laughs> but please tell me, Danielle, you have not been farting in any jars. 
Well, as I was listening to your story, we could knit one that says, on the jumper, fart in a jar. That could be the slogan. (laughs) (laughs) We're always on the lookout for a hashtag, so that can be added to the mix. All right, I'm just writing that down. (laughs) We're going to create a range of T-shirts and or knit. Where are you in the world yes. today? Because John's in the UK, I'm in, I'm in Australia. Where are you? Because we have an audience from all over the world. I live in Sydney. I live in a fantastic area in Sydney. The reason that I love where I live in Sydney is I live in a really old block of apartments. There's only 10 apartments in the block and it's in a really fabulous area. You can walk to the beach, walk to the supermarket, walk to the train, and this afternoon when I called you, Simon, I was walking to the pool and I don't have to worry about catching any viruses because it's all outdoors and you can swim drowned in chlorine. It gets rid of all those viruses as well. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's where I live and that's where I'm coming from. I was smiling when you called me because I think of John freezing his appendages off in, uh, in England this time of year <laughs> and you rang and you said, is this going to be recorded visually because I've just got out of the pool? So. <laughs> <laughs> And Danielle, maybe following from uh, Simon's introduction, where he sort of tapped into or touched on lots of things that you are involved in, um, how would you briefly describe what it is you do? I own a company called Coco, K-O-C-O. It stands for Knit One Garment, Change One Life. And the company that I own is in India. And so for a living, really, we go into rural villages, find ladies that have never been to school before and teach them a trade. It's the art of hand knitting. So we have to teach them to read English. We teach them to do maths. We teach them to hand knit. And in the process, we break the financial cycle, the education cycle, and the domestic violence cycle of every village that we enter. My job is to find people who'd like to wear hand knitted garments so that these women have lots and lots of work. Okay, good, good. I love it. Now, reading uh, about all you've done and all the things in your life, you've done so many interesting things, which we'll jump into a little bit more. What are your intersections, if you could describe them? My intersection is arts and science. My thing is I turn an art into a science. I did it in music. Hand knitting is a language. I do it in that. I did physics and chemistry at school and I earn my living in the creative arts so I fit firmly on that intersection. It's really interesting as you said that Danielle it just made me think you know I mentioned Michael Kidner just earlier and there was something in what he was doing it was all mathematical constructs his work was all about science translated into something that was then artistic and it's interesting you'll often find that seems to play out quite a bit I think we found that Simon you get people in that sort of almost polymaths as we've said where they bring together seemingly very disparate disciplines and actually form something in the intersection which is quite magical I think these things you're born with a little bit and then it's how you're raised a little bit as well so my parents were both pharmacists so I had a lot of science talk chemists you know If I was at school, like I used to teach chemistry for five fleeting minutes of a past career, you know, and I was raised with that precision of balancing an equation and knowing that. But at the same time, I had a gazillion piano lessons. So, you know, that's a two-hand development. So you have equal right hand and left hand. And every activity I ever did that was equal hand, so I swam as a child, that's two-handed activities. I played the piano a lot. It's two-handed activities. So I think a combination of both those is how one's brain gets to be developed to end up in that space. 
Yeah. And it's really interesting, as you say, the idea that when you fuse these kind of different disciplines together, actually it does feed the creative mind or creative pursuits, doesn't it? Because you see patterns. Again, I know we'll come to patterns as we talk about knitting. You do see patterns, I think, when you've come at it with those two different, uh, not different spheres of the brain, as it were, but those two different mindsets, they come together. You can edit that bit out, Simon. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave it in. I like the spheres of the brain. I, I couldn't grasp the word. I've just, just still got the first coffee of the day in my hand. So, <laughs> yeah, But I like this concept, though, these things which mash up against each other because we can be very linear often in our career pursuits. And I think especially in the corporate world, you might sort of be on that, you know, especially if you're sort of our age or maybe a little bit younger, like we're sort of on that, we're on that cusp of where you're not stuck in that career for life. But I think people before us, you do that one thing and you therefore say, oh, I'm just an accountant or I'm just, but these intersections of your interests inside and outside of work. And so often we hear about the arts and sciences mashing up together because this arts thinking, if that's the right way to say it, gives you a different way of looking at the world. But so often we think, oh, art's there to entertain us or we'll look at it and clap and go back to the serious stuff. But these intersections of art, science, business, commerce, entrepreneurialism, which is, I could say, where our Danny Earle is, this is where this wonderful melting pot sits and where you know great things happen. And would you add, with that intersection of art and science, Danielle, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Is that another intersection? Do you see yourself as a, a business person and you have an interest in business? And so art, science and business comes together for you? Absolutely. The business is there as a given because that's the space that I was raised in. Like my parents were in that and, you know, they always say that if you sell before you're 10 years old, you know how to sell to earn a living. And in those days when I was growing up, because unlike you two guys, I firmly sit in the middle age bracket, you two spring chickens. <laughs> you know, I was a girl. It's plenty of grey there. It's plenty of grey. and <laughs> You'd go around and sell the Girl Guide biscuits and you'd go door to door in those days selling. So, you know, I used to get the champion for the most number of biscuits sold or whatever it was that I was selling. So that that's just a given in my blood. That's not a developmental thing. That's in, intrinsic in my DNA. So, Danielle, we're always curious about people's journeys to where they find themselves at this moment in time. So this is just a little quick fire round just to get a bit more background, a little bit of the history for yourself and uh, what your story is so far. So do you have uh, three words that maybe described you at school? Yes, I was diligent. I was either attentive or focused, whichever one of those words you need to pick. And the third one would be creative. Now, okay. In school or past school or your early life, uh, any big experiences that influenced you along the way where you can maybe look at back and think, uh, that sort of put me on my path or that was my sliding doors moment or something? I've always had that equal blend of art and science. So in my chemistry class in grade 12 at school, I used to sew underneath the desk because chemistry was easy for me, so I didn't have to concentrate. <laughs> what did so you, what did you, what did you sew? Were you knitting like I sewed a strands of DNA? <laughs> I sewed a patchwork quilt by hand. In those days there was a million fabric shops and the fabrics came on rolls 
and the name of the mill was stamped on the edge of the fabric along the selvage and stores that sold rolls of fabric had to cut that off because the customers didn't want it. So I'd go around the stores every week asking them for their cut-off selvage edges and I made a whole quilt by hand from that at school. Wow. <laughs> that's that's properly entrepreneurial, isn't it? I mean, that is, that's a definition of spotting well, opportunity. Well, not really because I never wanted to sell it and I didn't find anybody to buy it. So oh, right. the entrepreneur well, comes it, from coming to earn money from it, right? So it was inventive. It becomes entrepreneurial if you make money from it. Yes, okay. <laughs> it was creative and inventive. Now, what I'm interested in, this quilt would have grown under the table over time, so originally a little hanky size. After a while, how were you hiding it in, in chemistry? Like, <laughs> well, I made all the little, you call them hanky sizes, you know, they're like little daisies. I made like, I think it was 200 of them. So they were ah. only sewn together at home. And you were never spotted. You never got sort of, they went, Jill, what are you doing? Yeah, I, was spot. I don't know if I was spotted, but no one said anything because, you know, it doesn't make any noise or anything. It doesn't create any disruption. <laughs> you know, it was not like the naughty kids who ate chocolates in school and made all sorts of rabbles in the classroom. <laughs> and in terms of people who might have inspired you along the way, and maybe sort of leading from school onwards, uh, Daniel, were there particular people who sort of helped you along the journey or had you sort of pick a certain path along the way? I've always been really, really lucky in life in that the right person's always popped in at the right time. So there was my chemistry teacher who took a bit of a personal interest in me in that instance at school. Then when I entered university and I started studying music, I was in this class and you had to hand in something and I handed in zero. I, I had no idea what I was doing in music then. And the teacher came up to me and said, if you want to pass this class, meet me on Saturday afternoon at this place. And she took a personal interest in me. So I went from failing at really at the bottom to actually getting a PhD in that subject matter. So she was highly influential in my life. And I wanted to learn it. I just didn't want to fail because I knew nothing about it. It's not that I was bad at it. I actually knew nothing. So she was very influential. Then I've spent a week on Necker Island with Richard Branson. I've had... Um, in, that was a business thing with business chicks. That was, that was an amazing experience. They were taking applications and they sent out emails. And I remember at the time I was in India. And when I first started working in India, there was no Wi-Fi where I was. So I didn't have any emails or any access. And one day I just happened to be sitting somewhere stealing somebody else's Wi-Fi because I think I was there for like a month in a row. And down was this email and it said, fill it in or something. And the wife I was just about to go and I forwarded it to a friend and I phoned her up. You know, I had to walk two kilometres to phone up this friend to say, I sent you this email, did you get it? And she said, yes. And I said, I don't have any Wi-Fi. Can you do me a favour and fill it in for me, please? I want to go on this trip. And she's like, Danielle, you have to fill out all this stuff. What do I say? And I said, say whatever you like, just fill it out and send it in. And so she sent it in and then I totally forgot about it. And then I think it was like four months later or something, I phoned up and said, did you ever get my application? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it came really late and it was all filled. And I'm like, yeah, well, I knew that really. And then I think it was like two nights before the trip was about to depart, Emma phoned me up. And I remember this always till the day I die. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, what's she doing working at 11 o'clock at night? And who's up at that hour? 
And so, like, she was working, I was up, and I just happened to answer the phone. She said, Danielle, someone's cancelled. You want to come? And I'm like, you better believe it. I'm coming. That was an experience of a week. And I've just had quite a few experiences through my life that have just come from, I don't know what you call it, luck, but it's in my flow. And I've just always been really fortunate, actually, to have met amazing people along the way. Now, um, I want to test something with you. Know, I think John rolls his, his eyes a little bit when I go into this sort of space. But my thoughts is, you know, when you said people appear in your life at the right time. And my thoughts, if you're sending out good energy into the world and you're in a good space and making a, trying to make a positive contribution and let's got your spiritualities right, whatever you want to say that, you know, wherever you put that, then the energy, the universe sends you good things back. Do you ascribe to that in some way and how some of these things might have popped up? I think John's looking like he's sucked on a lemon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a scientist, Simon. I'm a scientist. (laughs) Yeah, but there is something in vibes. You know, people have vibes, don't they? As I explained to the non-believers, whatever word you want to use, you know, however you describe it, what you said or karma or vibes, you know, it's all the same thing. But as I explained to my girls, my girls in India that I work with, you know, if you go to a party or go to someone's house, everybody in this whole world, when they walk into a room, looks around the room and says, don't want to talk to them. Well, they look okay. I, I wouldn't mind talking to them or hope they come over and talk to me. So it doesn't really matter. You don't actually have to open your mouth. Everybody actually has something. And... I think that happens with people. I actually think that happens with businesses. You know, people always say to me, Danielle, what do you got to do to attract brands like that? What do you got to do to attract customers like that? And I actually think it's the same. It's in the vibes. Like the world comes when they know it's ready. There's something in that journey of life. I couldn't agree more, John. So please take this on notice, okay? uh... (laughs) Let's let's be clear. I take Danielle's description there of us having an aura or vibe that may attract or repel people but i don't believe i could will things into existence sat in a room on my own no but it's more along the if you put out the best effort into the world uh, more often than not the world will reward you with that best effort it's like it's like lucky people lucky stuff happens to them all the time so remember the butcher I remember the butcher story. But no, I I accept that. I think if you put yourself out there with a certain thing, you are more likely to spot an opportunity because you'll be open to it. So I do think there's there's definitely something in it that if you're open to that, then you spot more likely, you'll notice. And that's definitely a big part of it. So, yeah. Well, on a more because people like to get to know the people on your podcast, I think what's peculiar or pertains to my personality type is that I take myself out of my comfort zone more than the average person. Which we know is a, is a big theme here, yeah. Well, it's just what I do sort of thing. And I'll give you a really silly example that happened just in the last three weeks. Yeah, please do. That was my follow-up question. Can you give us an example? Yeah, fire away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the scheme of health, like many people do, they either go to the gym and I used to swim. So near me was an indoor heated 20-metre pool. Been there, going there for years. At the same time that COVID came, one of the women I used to swim with told me she's not coming to that pool anymore. And so I guess a couple of things I thought, oh, I don't know if it's that safe. You know, it's indoors in the change room. I didn't feel I'd get it in the pool, but in the change room there's thousands of people in there and it's 
indoor heated and it just felt a bit icky. They have aquaerobics and, you know, if we talk about farts in a jar, I can just say, you know, there's a million old women in there and I just didn't <laughs> want to be in the change room with COVID and all this sort of stuff. And this friend, this other woman who's, this, I suppose you call a bit of a swimming mentor for me, said, Danielle, I'm going to this other pool. It's an outdoor pool. And I'm like, because oh, I don't like swimming in cold water. I grew up in Brisbane. I like warm water to swim in. These people who like swim in the ice, I just think they're like from Norway or somewhere. So <laughs> I don't like putting myself out and going swimming in cold water. So I went to this pool and I thought, yeah, I'll go and check it out because I really want to swim with this woman. You know, she's a swimming teacher or mentor, whatever you call it, coach. And the first time I went there, I nearly froze to death. No kidding. The change rooms aren't heated. They've got big barbed wire, big open areas in the change room. The wind's rustling through. It's freezing. And I put my big toe in the pool and I'm like, oh, lordy, man, I don't think I can do this. And I got in. I must have swum nearly killed myself swimming like a 50-metre lap because I'm used to swimming like 20-metre laps. I got like three-quarters of the way to the pool and I'm like, I can't even make it to the end. This is my first swim after my own heart surgery, by the way, so I wanted to get back in the pool. So I'm like, oh, man, I don't know if I can do this. And then I got out and on the way home, it's like, you know what, I feel a million bucks. So (laughs) after that moment of sufferance I thought I'm going to try again so but this time I wore a tracksuit so that when I got out of the pool I didn't have to go into that change room so I wear my swimsuit there I wear a tracksuit there I put a tracksuit on out of the pool so I don't have to go in there and then I swam two laps and I'm like I think I can do this but then the third time I wanted to swim more than two laps so then I went and got myself a pair of flippers And so the idea of taking yourself out of that comfort zone. So just today, Simon, when I phoned you up and said I was swimming, I just got out of the pool from swimming 12, 50-meter laps for five months after heart surgery in the pouring rain. (laughs) And I feel a million bucks. Wow. So, And I felt really proud of myself, and I don't often say that. Like I have accomplished a lot of things in my life that have external rewards. But this was just one little personal thing that I thought, I feel really chuffed. It's time now for another thought experiment, which, as you know, is an opportunity as philosophers to stretch our minds and consider deep and profound things in detail and chew them over in a way that might enlighten us. So, Danielle, Today's thought experiment is knit or not. And so I will, uh, I will sort of. Knit or not myself, to knit, that is the question. Knit or not. So it's actually knit or not, K N O T. So what I'm going to give is, uh, or myself and Simon will give a series of labels or names, and you have to say whether they are a knit, as in a stitch, type of stitch, or a knot which could be any type of knot that you uh, you care to think of. So let's start with this, and we'll give you maybe an easy one to start with. Um, garter, knit, knit or not? Oh, very good. You sounded quite sort of uh, confident there. <laughs> I think we've got a, we're onto a winner here, John. So uh, I, 
how about this one? <laughs> Knit or not? Uh, monkey's fist. Not. Two yes. out of two. Ooh. Very good. Ooh. All right. Okay. Okay, is the third one. Lanyard. Knit not. or not? Oh, she's very good, John. I think we, I think, I think we've got someone who's good at knitting and a sailor. <laughs> That's what a dad did on the weekends. So yeah. <laughs> okay. No, so, it's girl a you have to, do, you have to do knots for girl guides. Okay. Ah. Okay. We're scuppered here. I think we are. Uh, if the fisherman's rib, knit or not? Knit. Oof. Very good. I think you're just playing the odds now, aren't you? You're playing the odds. You're trying to guess it's like a roulette wheel, whether it's going to be red or black. Right, here we go. Scapino. Sounds like an Italian seafood dish. <laughs> Knit or not? But is it? <laughs> not. Ooh. It is a knot. Oh, we chucked that one in there. It's a, It's not a rope knot per se. It is a style of tie knot. It's actually better known as the Windsor knot which is like the knot par excellence for people in their best sort of tops and tails and morning suits and whatever but yeah it's the duke of windsor knot but it was invented as it were by domenico scapino who was an inventor and he was uh, a founder of this tailoring company in 1930s italy so there you go all right so, <laughs> that's five out of five i expanded on that well I expanded done, on that guy. way too much. Well done. I'm impressed. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a couple more. The surgeon's loop. Oh two, two more. Surgeon's loop. Two more. Knit or not? Not. Oh, you're right. Yeah. And for our best Last ever, one. John, let's see. Let's see how we go. Herringbone. Knit. God. Danielle, you're the first person to ever get seven out of seven. That's without a word of a lie. So... That brings us to the end of Knit or Not. Just wanted to talk a little bit more about what you're doing at the moment, Danielle. And one of the things that you have around Coco and also Artisan Nation is the fact that you do say that everyone you work with are artisans and not workers or similar. And that seems to be a real point of difference. So when you say artisan, what does that mean to you? And why do you have that terminology around the, the people that you work with? I think it's an all-encompassing umbrella. As a word, it's more respectful of the person that's the creator. And they are artisans. If you hand it all day for a living, you are creating an art. It, it's not an easy skill. People might laugh if I say it's an akin to Olympic sport. But to be an Olympian, it takes a lot of skill. And to be an amazing hand knitter, it takes the same amount of skill, the same as it takes the same amount of skill to be an amazing musician. They're all languages and they're all arts in their own right. Sadly, knitting often is equated with old people's stay-at-home skills. But I've commercialised it and the girls who are artisan creators have to hold their body in the correct position like an Olympic athlete. Otherwise, they get RSI. They have to move. They have to have the right tension in their fingers. They have to hold their stitches. And because knitting is a language and I do have a background in music, I put them on parallel spheres for one of a better word. So the person who writes the knitting pattern is like the composer. The people who 
sees the jumper that you wear is like the audience listening to the music. The musicians that make the music are like the artisans that are making the garment because it's an art and it has a language all of its own right that's an intellectual pursuit. That's a Again, it's a wonderful analogy that really holds as you're describing that. I'm, I'm nodding along going, yeah, I get that. I get those the way you've drawn those different people out who are playing roles in something quite special. But you used the word language a couple of times there, Danielle. Can you just expand on that? You're saying there's a language here at play. What did you mean by that? Well, I've spent my whole life in music and everybody knows that music is a language. Language is a form of communication And as I say when I'm interviewing people to work with me, what other languages have you heard about? And most people talk about spoken languages, French, German, Italian, whatever. But I say you know other languages too. I'm sure most of you have heard of computer science languages. Oh, yes. And then what about chemistry? It has its own language. Oh, yes. And what about music? Oh, it has its own symbol and language. Oh, yes. And it's the same with knitting. It has its own symbol and language that is a whole evolving process like music or any other language. You can never know too much about it. It's a form of communication. Now, I was reading a a quote, and this builds exactly on this. I was reading a quote from yours in the Sydney Morning Herald. And then for some context, John, that's like a sort of the highbrow newspaper in Sydney. And I say that in a very positive way when I say uh, highbrow. And you said, <laughs> what, what I admire about the art of knitting are the same qualities I admire in music. Endless creative possibilities made possible by skilled and passionate hands and a perfect score or pattern. So I can see that music has played a big role in this. What's musicology, though? Because you've got a doctorate in it. So, yeah, how would you describe musicology as opposed to music? for the layperson, which is myself. Well, music's a sound, isn't it? It's a noise. I guess I could throw off at the terminology and try not to be too serious about it, even though it dedicated years of my life, and I could just say it's writing a whole lot of fluff about what you hear. (laughs) No, be serious. Be serious because what I like, though, is this has driven the work you do now, which is these sort of intersections. Yeah, very much so. So in the music thing, to be serious, it's writing about an understanding about what you hear. So because I do have that intersection of science and maths, I was very much into music theory analysis, analysing the patterns of what you hear, so learning and understanding musical memory and how things are put together. And so because of that background in knitting, both the actual physical art of knitting and the art of pattern writing, you know, I've kind of got developed in my own life, because I have this thing of making an art into a science, of having it sequentially stepped of first you do this, then you have to do this, then this is the next step, and once you understand this, this is the next step, and once you understand this, this is the next step, and that's what makes it a language because you can never know too much, right, about it, and it's a form of communication. Again, it's just fascinating this idea of how pattern-making is one of the things that can underpin great creativity. It's seeing the ability to see patterns and to understand patterns and how they're constructed and how you can bring different patterns together and how one thing may spring from something else by way of a pattern. Again, that Michael Kidner op art thing was going back to right at the top of the episode. That was exactly as you see what he's produced. It's exactly the same idea. There's a language there. There's a way that these elements interact 
that with a certain mindset, you can see how they interact. You can see those patterns and that allows you to create something quite magical. That was all I was going to say, Simon. That's no, good. It's good. And look, on that, we, we always talk around, I talk about this a lot when I speak uh, to an audience around curiosity. Curious people see things that other people miss and curious people connect patterns in different ways and they connect things they didn't even know were there. But because their eyes were open, they saw things that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. So I'm going to use that as a, a segue, Daniel. My next question, what drives your curiosity? Because as I said in our intro, you're one of the most curious cats I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting and chatting with. So what drives your curiosity now or ongoing? I guess it depends on the subject matter. Like if I get into it, I just have this innate something that I want to understand more how it works. It doesn't really matter whether it's for work or for pleasure, or for understanding, you know, how one breeds, you know, or chocolate making on the weekends, you know, whatever it is, if I enjoy it, I would just want to, I just have this thirst of knowledge and I want to understand more how it works. And John and I have been speaking a little bit around, we had a pre, our last <coughs> episode was on New Year's habits and goals and reflecting on how we never ever actually meet them. Uh, we sort of fade out at the end of January. <laughs> One of our observations standing back is you might not have enough interest, passion or joy in that goal. And I think what you've said, if, if there's enough interest in it, it's not a drag, is it? It's a, it's, it's a joy to follow down that path. It's true, but I actually think that language has a lot to do with outcomes. And I think language is very important in the way people articulate things. And I think a New Year's goal or resolution is something that's too far out there. It's like, oh, yeah, I aspire to that. Whereas if it's expressed of what changes would you like in this year or what would you like to focus on this year or if you're standing there this time next year, like at this time next year, what would you like to see that's different? I think it's easier to unpack something that's more real. Danielle, just a, a slight tangential question, but in terms of that, work that you're doing, deeply curious, thirst for knowledge as you described it. Do other people play into your work as well that help fuel that curiosity and creativity? Do you bounce off people? Is that something you take joy from as well, just working with other people in that process? As in coming up with ideas? Yes, and the whole the work that you do, the whole entrepreneurial side of it, is it important to you that you're working with other people as you seek to find opportunities and create things and yeah, move things along? Um, well, I think to pull off any venture, everybody needs people at both ends of the spectrum around them. So they need to be mentored themselves. Like through the years, I've had people, business coaches, mentors, whatever name that you want, who of various levels and various capabilities who have put into my being and the same that I put out to those around them and put it all in the melting pot and that's what comes out, like what your current work is. And what I find really interesting about life is each decade that you go through life, you know, on one hand, when you're 30, you don't feel any different to when you're 20. So using that same thing, when you're 40, you don't feel any different to when you're 30. But when you're 50, you actually do feel that you've lived a long time and you have a lot of life experience, if people have had a lot of life experience. So you actually, I don't know, something happens, well, at least to me, that you feel a bit more confident of giving out and knowing I can do this rather than I'd like to try to do this. It's like this is what I'm going to do. 
And if you don't know how you're going to do it, you know how to find those who can fill in the gaps for you. A confidence to to do what you want to do and a confidence to recognise what you can't do and maybe sort of draw that in from other people. Yes, well, especially with me, I don't, like, God forbid anybody else should be the same. But, you know, growing up, if I didn't know something or didn't know how to do it, I actually would feel inadequate. I'm like, I don't know what to do here. Or how do you do that? Whereas now, I don't feel this feeling of inadequacy. It's like, I just phoned so-and-so, I'm stuck with this. Can you just show me how to do this? Yeah, sure. Like, I don't know. It's just different. (laughs) Yeah. And there's always someone who knows what you need to know. That's what I think is one of those great things. Just don't think, uh, Absolutely. how can I do it? Sort of who can help me to do this rather than how can I do this by myself? Look, I'm reading another article from, and you're all over the place, so it's quite easy to find uh, information. And the quote says, the skills developed through the PhD process have helped Danielle's business and leadership success. For example, the ability to handle masses of information at once organizational analytical proficiency, and here's what I'm getting to though, plus the belief that anything is possible if you're willing to put in the hard yards, not to forget determination, passion, and experience. So can you tell us a little bit more about this aspect, also aspect of creativity, you know, the keeping going, the, uh, we always say experimenting rather than failing, getting up, trying again. How's that all played out for you? And what can you share about that process? I'm pretty determined if I want to pull something off that I actually just don't stop until it happens. Like I think I heard somebody say once, I didn't think like this, but they articulated it like people have a plan B. Why have a plan B? Because then you're setting up for failure for plan A. So, (laughs) you know, like when I left music, people would say to me, well, if you can't pull, why are you leaving music? You know, you spent so many years at this, you were so good at what you did, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you can't pull it off with knitting, you can always come back. And I said, no, that's like going back to an old boyfriend. Why would you do that? Like <laughs> life only has one direction and that's forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not one to straddle with one foot on either side of the fence. As a not-so-serious business podcast, we always like to dive into things we can do to bring more creativity, curiosity, and imagination into our lives, our teams, and our organization. So, Danielle, just one key thing, what advice would you have for others sitting at home to bring more passion, creativity, and curiosity into their lives? I think everybody deep in their heart knows what they really love, but I don't think everybody in their heart actually probably spends enough time doing what they really love. And... For teams, Danielle, a lot of the work that we would do in organisations, we often work with teams. And is there some advice around there for groups of people working together, teams working together, that advice you would have about how they can be creative together, collaborate more effectively together? What would you say in that regard? I think every group of people has its challenges. Different days, different months, different times of the year, different challenges arise. All I can say there is what we do so when the ladies in India get stuck and they come to me and ask me a question it doesn't really matter if it's stuck with their work or stuck with something that happens at home all the questions that they ask me are always solved in the same way and that is 
I never actually ever answer the question for them. So I either say back, if I wasn't here, what do you think you would do? So many times people know the answer themselves but have never had some support in trying to work it out. And another thing that I do is I ask them, this is something that has many ways to be solved. Let's get a little group of people here so we get five people in a circle and I'm one of them and I facilitate it. And I say to them, can you tell everybody what the issue is? And then we go around the circle more than once always, giving different ideas of what they would do. And then I say to the person who raised the issue in the first place, are you good to go now? And they're like, yeah, thanks. And the people with the problems generally have the answers as well. And I like that just being, if you can frame things in the right way, you'll, you'll ask great questions. As John, one of your quotes is, great questions do the heavy lifting. So if you let a great question do the heavy lifting, the, the answer is there. Now, you're, you're very much into empowerment, building lives, building artisans, like helping people reconnect with, I'd say, almost their very humanness as well and making a, a beautiful contribution in the world. So maybe even looking through that lens, if you're a leader in the organisation, how might you bring, how might you how might you empower your the people you lead to be artisans, not just workers, and I guess, you know, find their heart and soul? I think for that it's all about confidence and it's the same thing, really. You know, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. If it's artwork like I see on the back of your wall there, Simon, or, you know, something that the ladies are knitting or something that somebody's composing if they come to somebody that they think has answers that are better than theirs and they say, what do you think? Is this all right? And it's exactly the same, isn't it? So I just say, so in order to work out if it's okay or not, what are some of the things that we need to look at? So again, so that they can work it out themselves. But something that I want to pick up on is a little spiel that you just said five minutes ago that was responding to what I said, and it was, solving problems. So through my journey of life, my children will call it, mum has these words that are flavours of the month. But some words, fart in a jar has been one of them, that'll become one of them. (laughs) But one of the words that I'm really allergic to is a problem. That word, because if you use the word, it actually is a problem. So I can be quite mean when it comes to this word. And taking back to my swimming analogy, because I wanted to swim during the winter, today I bought a wetsuit and I couldn't work out what size I was online, so I phoned the store owner and he didn't answer the phone, I just left a message. And the store owner called me back and I said, thank you so much for calling me back, it's okay now, I worked out what to do, I guess you're the owner. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, oh, I just bought a wetsuit online. And what I want to tell you and the listeners is that's an expensive purchase. And his answer to me was, I said, oh, I've just bought a wetsuit online. It's okay. And he said, it's not a problem. To which I replied, spending $600 in your shop I don't think ever was a problem, was it? And was there an eerie silence after that or, yeah? Well, the point of sharing that story is when people who are leaders need to solve something, 
I think that this word is way overused and it's a big hindrance to what people want to achieve in their life because it says much more about him even though I gave a very curt answer. What would you rephrase that word when? What would you change that word to, problem? What's a better one, better way to phrase it? Because, you know, language like questions do the heavy lifting. Well, in the instance of that store owner, he could have simply just said, you're welcome. Okay. All right. <laughs> it would have made me want to go back because rest assured, <laughs> I'm not buying my second wetsuit there. With the ladies, if they have a situation like what is a problem? A problem is something that arises that somebody doesn't know what to do with, that they feel stuck. So the key is if you're mentoring them, it's like how do you unstuck them? How do you get them to unstick themselves? All right, now we're going to go into a rapid fire round here. Short and sharp, one thing you couldn't do without your life in the moment. Sorry, I'll say that again. Okay. My defibrillator. (laughs) All right, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not funny, all right T- tell us about the defibrillator go on please you have to all right no, it's okay john next question it's a thing that's i totally i totally put up I my stride that's medicine. the best answer i think we've ever had i wear this thing i had this thing inserted to me it's like half i have an iphone you know it's half the size of your iphone and they just, I won't grip bear with you and show you my scar, but they cut it here and they stick it in here and the electrodes connect to your heart and this machine goes back to some laboratory in America that monitors this thing the whole time and goes back to the electrophysician cardiologist guy here in Sydney who has somebody read this thing who can phone me up and tell me, you know how your battery on your iPhone, they can tell you how many years. It's like, Danielle, your battery will last 10 years. So I'm like, Jesus, man, I don't know how many times I can go through this every 10 years. I have a lot to achieve in 10 years. So there's nothing like getting you focused and knowing the battery's going to run out. (laughs) Again, that's a great quote for a T-shirt. You never know when the battery's going to run out. (laughs) Well, I hope by the time I'm that age that the, the thing can be recharged like your iPhone so there's a wireless recharge. We're building the occupational philosopher's manifesto as opposed to our own manifesto. Uh, so what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included in our manifesto? Focus on yourself, not what's wrong with other all people. Right. I love it. Now, is there a book we should be reading? The last most interesting book was by Jonathan McDonald. I worked with him for a while called Powered by Change. And is there a favourite quote, Danielle, that you would share that has been um, – a guiding light for you? Yeah, I'll quote myself. How's that for being cheeky? Lead by example. Now, Danielle, let's say you're in your your later years. The battery is still powering strong, but it's slightly lower rhythm. And you've been taken to your retirement home in a very happy state. How would you like to be introduced to the retirement home? You've been taken into the, let's say, the dining area. Everyone's enjoying themselves. And they say, here's Danielle. She... It's not my home. I won't be there. That's never going to happen to me. All right, we can run with that. (laughs) I'll be like, who do you want me to visit here? (laughs) Take me out of here. I'm in the wrong place. I'm meant to be over there. (laughs) Uh, What are you up to next, Danielle? What's big on on the agenda or the radar? We're revolutionizing the way knitting patterns are being written. 
I know that sounds a frivolous thing to some people, but it's never been automated and it's a massive job of automating it, as I said, turning an art into a science. And so it's been tried by a lot of people before, you know, trying to have automatic programs. None of them have really worked. I'm not into doing making an app, but I kind of believe if I can teach women in India to do this, we've succeeded. So we're automating the art of hand-knitting pattern writing, and I'm kind of proud of that at the moment. It's a big project. Yeah, sounds amazing and maybe time for an, another conversation, I think, just given we've a short amount of time. But, look, where can we find you? Where can we connect with you, buy you virtual drinks? How do people understand more about what you're doing? www.cococo.global. Right. Any social okay. media that we can follow along with? Instagram, knit one, change one. Danielle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for sharing your story, some of your thoughts and some of the wisdom you've gleaned along the way. Really been a delight to chat to you. So thank you. Always a pleasure. You two are hysterical. I hope you get whoa, million whoa. downloads. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're listening at home, maybe just download us twice just for a little bit of a boost. So, yeah. <laughs> and also, Danielle, don't, let's not downplay the huge impact you're making on the lives of people and women across the globe, not only in bringing amazing fashion to the world and joyous things to wear, but the people involved in creating them. You're shifting lives and you're also bringing a great creative joy into the world in so many ways. So, look, from yeah, again, from John and I, a huge big thank you. And we wish you all the very best in a most exciting 2022. And thank you very much, both John and Simon. And, Simon, thank you very much for acknowledging that connection between the two polar ends of the planet. Simon, a real delight to talk to Danielle there. As ever, we'd like to sort of wrap up with some takeaways what were they for you this time? No, I'll just go with a couple. And I really like this. Everybody needs people at both ends of the spectrum for any endeavor. So it's good to have a mentor, but you also need to be contributing back to that community and be the, the mentee. So take in knowledge and share knowledge, keep that continuum going. And uh, again, we hear this all the time, just comfort zone. And I've really thought, oh, I probably, I think I've been a week back at work. I don't know if I've played enough out of my comfort zone. I think I've settled into some easy things and I thought, no, I need to get a bit more uncomfortable. And it's funny, I said that to a group I'm involved with the other day, an accountability group. We were arming and ahhing whether to take on some stuff. And I said, well, look, it's good to be uncomfortable, isn't it? And everyone went, okay, let's do it. So, <laughs> But I thought to myself, I thought, no, I'm actually, I've probably been a little bit vanilla the last week and I'm going to try a few little different things. What about you, John? What were your key takeaways? For me, the, the stuff that Danielle was saying around teams and organizations more generally, she had some great questions. If I wasn't here, what would you do? So it was that idea that she accepted that people within the team had the answer. So she adopted a coach-like approach. She was much more facilitative, and that was drawing the best out of them. They were able to solve the problem or think creatively by just saying, what would you do? And she pushed it back to them. So again, it's a great example of coming with questions rather than answers. And by extension, then the same for business leaders. All come around it. We all have the knowledge we need in this room. What do you think is the problem? What do you think might be the solution? And I think that's great, that coaching and facilitating approach that we can all take means that we draw the best out of each other. 
So that that was a real key one for me. And if you want a funny example of asking questions all the time, I rewatched the Forty Year Old Virgin the other night with Steve Carell. Uh, <laughs> right. If you watch that, very funny, very funny movie. And he's forty year old virgin. He never never had a girlfriend. And the advice they were giving was just just keep asking questions. So um, just you'll, you'll find that <laughs> you'll find it's a, it's a very funny movie, and it's it's not as not as maybe drastic as the as the, as the title <laughs> says. So, um, but it's a great a great little piece there. Just keep asking questions, and you you'll get about halfway through, and there's very it's a very funny uh, scene. But John, what do we want people <laughs> to do? What do we want sitting at home? What do we want you to do? Well, aside to getting out of your comfort zone and doing all the stuff we've been talking about on this episode, we'd like you to obviously subscribe. If you want to rate us, that would be great. Always good to get uh, that feedback. You can email us, which is occupationalphilosophers.gmail, I think. No, at Check Gmail. Website, at oh. Gmail. There you go. Website, occupationalphilosophers.com. And uh, yeah, get in touch, tell your friends. And in the meantime, stay curious, make stuff and play more and have fun. <laughs>